live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch, to part two of a very different series on history. It's taking us back 2,000 years, the origins of Christianity. We've had a lot of feedback on episode one and some fascinating questions, which I hope you will be responding to at the end of the series. Yes. So please do keep sending to podcasts at jlee.org.uk. They've been really good questions. Rabbi Hirsch will try and address the best ones. Okay. And once again, just to reopen with the point we ended on, be nice to non-Jewish Christians, non-Jewish Muslims. You can go into business with them, treat them as a patient, consult them as a doctor, but you can't marry them nor live their religion because it is untrue. Thanks for that disclaimer. Yep. So where have we left our listeners? So we left at a turning point. Uh, Yeshu had died around 30 CE. Paul radically altered the direction between 37 and 55 CE so that Yeshu's personal teachings become almost irrelevant. And around 15 years later, the second temple is destroyed and the church passes out of the hands of Jewish Christians into the hand of pagan, hands of pagan Christians who have been taught that Christianity is simply a matter of faith. And unsurprisingly, historically, it is now that we speak of the 19th blessing in our silent prayer, Vlamalshinim or Vlamushumodim, against heretics, because Christianity is becoming a pagan religion from within Judaism. Whereas uh, in its first iteration prior to this, Christians could be included in the minion. But now it's deemed as dangerous. Just understand, you said that Christianity is simply a matter of faith, but you can't murder or steal. In Christianity, yeah. right, I don't mean that. I mean, what do you have to do in terms of activity to be Christian, in terms of Lahavdil Mitzvah Asay? And the answer is nothing. Perhaps it's worth expanding for a moment on this concept of just faith, because it isn't a temporary state of affairs. It's absolutely true today, as much as it was in 70 CE when the pagans took over. It explains the extent of missionary activity against the Jews through the ages, and perhaps especially nowadays. Um, to be a Christian, beyond the, I mean, the original profession of faith and potentially baptism, but on an ongoing basis, what is required? Nothing. You go to heaven simply because you are a Christian, which means, well, let's translate the word. A Christian means you are a follower or a believer in Christos. You have to believe, admit, admit your sins, acknowledge, commit your life to him. Now, I know this sounds perhaps exaggerated, but I, I took this quest online through every forum, through, you know, Quora and Wikipedia and Reddit and got a question. And then obviously all the Christian websites, my wife started getting worried. <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough that I have a shelf of books of Christianity at home, all bearing very obvious titles. But now 
every time she walked into my office, I was listening to a different Christian pastor or priest. <laughs> you know, it was Black Friday, so I had 15 tabs open and none of them were Amazon or eBay. In fact, that's a change from the Holocaust, I suppose. Though. Yes. Yeah. I, I had to lock my office over Shabbos. I didn't need my grandchildren wandering in and going to school on Sunday saying, my grandfather's a rabbi and he reads books called Vicars of Christ and he must read them a lot because he has lots of notes on it. <laughs> so anyway. Right. So I quote, being a Christian is not about going to church or living a good life. It is not even about believing in God. It is about being a follower of JC. And, you know, I remember hearing the same things from Rabbi Asher Wade, who was once a Lutheran pastor and a theologian. Uh, he had a degree, has a degree in philosophy, a master's in theology. He ran a church in Germany. So, you know, a very qualified opinion. And you will find in the New Testament, later than the Gospels themselves, for instance, in Romans chapter 10, and I quote, For Christos has already accomplished the purpose for which the law, the Torah in other words, was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. It's just belief. In Galatians, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now, I am making a list of all the things I said I would come back to uh, from last week and adding now this is one of them because I don't want there to be any loose ends. Okay, so back to the context, back to the timeline of events. Okay, so we mentioned that with Paul, you have someone who created church ideology. And the question is, how far or how are Paul's teachings being canonized? You can't just rely on one guy. You know, how far can you take them? Now, initially, there are the Gospels, and then there will be the unfolding of the entire New Testament. But the New Testament only takes its form in the fourth century, 300 years after Paul has died, written in Greek, the Gospels. The Gospels are Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark, Matthew, and Luke were written somewhere between 70 and 90 CE. And as the New Oxford Annotated Bible states, and I quote, scholars generally agree that the Gospels do not present eyewitness or contemporary accounts of Yeshua's life and teaching because they were written by people who hadn't met him. Whereas John of the four is written later, around 120 CE, which is three generations after he was crucified. And this one is the most Christological, by which I mean that here when they talk about the Son of God, they mean it literally. Because when we as Jews refer to Hashem as our father, we therefore refer to Jews as a son or a daughter. But by the time John is written, the temple has been destroyed more than 50 years, and this is a literal interpretation. Now, at the time, there were a group of Christian Jews called the Ebionites, who were Christians believing that you couldn't be Christian without being faithful to the law of Moses, as we mentioned last week from the book of Acts. They didn't believe he was divine. They rejected the virgin birth, and they lived their own type of moral life, I guess. We don't know much about them. 
for one simple reason. They die out in the second century because now that the Jews are no longer in the land of Israel in the main and are being persecuted by the church and the church is in the hand of pagans, so it disappears. And basically, Christianity will now bump along for the next uh, 200 years. What do you mean by bump along? I mean, something must have kept it going, giving it life. So it survives by blending into existing pagan beliefs and practice. They don't yet have uh, a calendar of their own, a book of their own, a country of their own. It's very vague. It could have actually died during those 200 years, but it adapted by borrowing from existing beliefs. Take Mithraism, for example. There's a religion called Mithraism, which is the worship of the sun. What's interesting is that Mithraism was a well-known pagan cult in the Middle East, and it had been for a century before Paul was born. Now, obviously, if this is the worship of the sun, if, if Mithras is the sun god, what date of the year is his birthday? The 25th of December. And therefore, no real Christian theologians make the argument that Yeshu was born then. You know, yeah, I've come across a website that shows a photo of a Bedouin in the fields in December, and that proves, according to this website, that yes, you can be out there with your sheep. But no theologian of weight believes that. They will agree that the 25th of December has pagan origins. And this belief of Mithraism has aspects to it which are readily recognizable. Baptism the adoration of the shepherds at Mithra's birth and the adoption of Sunday as the holy day. And what it does is it makes easy conversion of its followers to Christian doctrine. And therefore, this day, this 25th of December, Saturnalia, is a pagan festival. It's left as a day of celebration. And eventually, in 354 CE, Pope Gregory proclaims it as the date of the Nativity. But in doing so, he is basically following the early church's policy of absorbing rather than replacing existing pagan rites. And, you know, at the same time, in Northern Europe, there is a similar winter festival known as Yule, um, which is related to the uh, Norse god Odin. And it's celebrated with giant logs trimmed with greenery and ribbons, which are burnt. So this sun worship, it persists in Europe long after Christianity is the dominant religion with this Yule log on Christmas. And also, I mean, think about it, the Christmas tree. Where would you find fir trees in the Middle East? You know, maybe on a mountain. Yeah. But, you know. What about Santa Claus, seeing that we're being very timely? <laughs> okay, so there is a German artist by the name of Thomas Nast who creates this picture of Santa Claus for more than 20 years. He drew images of Santa for Harper's Weekly, over 2,000 images, and he's the one who gives Santa a home in the North Pole, and his workshop is filled with elves, and he has a list of good and bad children, and all he is missing was his red outfit, and as uh, you... Who is he? St. Nicholas. It's mm. based on that. And as you mentioned last week about his red outfit in 1931, Coke 
contracted a commercial artist to create a Coke drinking Santa, and the corporation insisted that Santa's outfit be Coca-Cola red. But it's not just Christmas. Easter. The rabbit and the egg. They're pagan. Most likely from the Anglo-Saxon name of a Teutonic goddess of spring and fertility. So the festival festival is celebrated on the day of the vernal equinox, and the symbols of fertility are the rabbit and the coloured Easter eggs. St. Valentine's Day is Lupercalia, which is the Roman pagan festival of love at the beginning of spring. In fact, if you've ever wondered why, that the 31st of October, which goes on into the 1st of November, so the 31st of October is um, Halloween, and that spills over into the 1st of November, which is called All Saints Day. And it's a, uh, the whole day is Christian. But how does a Christian festival have anything to do with witches whom Christianity persecuted. Basically, they're taking existing, pre-existing pagan festivals and adopting them. And so therefore, to answer your question, bumping along over those couple of hundred years between Paul and their major transformation, by slipping in belief in Yeshu into existing pagan groups who believed, uh, well, they believed a whole host of things anyway. So this is so another hal- one. Halachically, these festivals are a real issue. So take um, Easter, you know, t- whether to give an Easter bunny or, or eggs. To so, an- so if it is a religious rite, I mean, a tree could be a proper question of Avodah of idolatry, rather than simply, you know, a practice which gets the kids happy. It could be very much problematic. But basically, at the time, if you wanted to become a Christian, you didn't even have to change your calendar, never mind, you know, sort of throw out your pots and pans and toggle your plates. You just carry on, as was. Right. So after 200 years, what, what exactly changes? Everything. Constantine the Great, the emperor. In 312, he becomes a Christian, and he therefore brings the entire Roman Empire with him. You know, I've often said that when people go to Rome, they spend time at Titus's arch, but not at the one next to it, the Arch of Constantine, larger one, which is open all the time. But it was Constantine who changed the world and, as a result, the lives of Jews for centuries to come. But he converts with a problem. You might have the Gospels. But there's no consensus on belief, no consensus on who Yeshu was. Was he a human being? Was he God? Was he both? There were Christians at the time who believed there were two gods, like the followers of Marison, and they claimed that Yeshu believed that too. Gnostic Christians claimed there were 12 gods. And, of course, you couldn't read the New Testament to find out where the truth is because there was no New Testament yet. It didn't exist. It only canonized at the end of the fourth century. So you've got many different versions, different writings within the Christian church. There's no accepted head of the church, no central city. You know, Rome wouldn't happen for a while. So the emperor, when he converts, says, you know, enough. My conversion basically comes with a condition, unity. You need to come to one conclusion on belief. I don't care how you do it. And he convenes around 300 bishops 
who met for two months to hammer out a universally acceptable definition of JC. And the last line that I just read to you comes from a website called Christianity Today. This is what it was to hammer out a universally acceptable definition. And interestingly, none of these 300 bishops are from the West. They're all from the East. Rome, as I mentioned, was non-existent. And the argument isn't just about the finer interpretations of a verse or a story or a law. It's a fundamental definition of who is Yeshu. There is a major belief called Arianism, which taught that he was more than human, but less than God, because God originally lived alone and had no son, and he created the son, who in turn created everything else. And this question is summed up philosophically, is the son begotten or not? Gregory of Nyssa writes, every corner of Constantinople was full of their discussions. The streets, the marketplace, ask the price of bread today and the baker tells you the son is subordinate to the father. Ask your servant if the bath is ready and he says the son arose out of nothing. So how on earth would all these people come to a conclusion if they have such varying differences of opinion? The emperor. He says, basically, you ain't leaving here until we come to a single line. But you'll see that there were other things that he did immediately after Nicaea, which strengthened that single belief. So the council concludes, more or less, that on the one hand, Yeshua was a normal human being of flesh and blood, and therefore he could fulfill every demand of God's moral law. He could keep every mitzvah, and he could also, and this is critical, suffer and die a real death. But he was equally, truly God, and therefore God himself had provided the sacrifice. And this total man and total God was one person. Now, in, in Roman and Greek theology or mythology, you have uh, 50% and 50%, you know, demigods. And that's why they sin and they fail and they give into temptation. If you read Greek fables, you know, they're killing each other, adultery, it's the works. Christianity differs from this because they don't teach Yeshua being 50% man and 50% God, but 100% man and 100% God. And it's not done just in, I don't know, to carve out a new spin on things, but because this is the only way he can have died fully and suffered fully for all of mankind's sins, yet be completely the Redeemer because he is fully divine. So it's basically a way of getting out of that room by coming to sort of an impossible agreement. Well, it wasn't impossible. This was a very much a belief stream walking into Nicaea. It oh, this just wasn't a compromise of the various No, views. no, no. no. It, what it did is it completely defeated Arianism. Arianism became heretical at the end of Nicaea. So a number of groups went in and one comes out. That, that's what happens. Bit of an uh, off-color question, but just uh, for the purpose of discussion, you mentioned that Christianity had to argue out with 300 bishops. What is the difference between that and Judaism arguing in the Talmud? People have differences of opinion. and No comparison. It's very different. Firstly, in terms of practice, halacha, Judaism doesn't argue about which day of the week is Shabbos. 
doesn't argue if ham is kosher, if a Kohen is allowed to marry a divorcee, if you can eat on Yom Kippur, if a mezuzah contains anything other than uh, the two paragraphs of the Shema. They argue about details, not about the commandments. And in terms of belief, no one questions that there's only one God and that no prophet, Moses, nobody else, there's no such thing as divinity. And basically, everybody accepts that what we now refer to as Orthodox Judaism was the original belief system and that people came later, uh, you know, movement here and there that broke away from Orthodoxy. It could be the Sadducees, could be the Karaites. Uh, but these guys were treading new ground, coming up with something that had not been done beforehand to reform it or change it. That's not the case with Christianity. There was no fixed belief there. There are many groups. And yeah. You know, that it's makes very sense. different. So this council in year 325, that is where modern day Christianity comes from. The underlying ideas and the principles, uh, absolutely, is fourth century. I mean, the church goes through enormous upheaval during that century. We touched last week on the concept of Mary's perpetual virginity. It's established as the only orthodox view in 390 CE, although there are still additions happening later. Priests not marrying is only a thousand years old. Before the 11th century, before the 10th century for sure, priests were married, had children. It doesn't have theological foundation, beyond which Paul was married, Peter was married. What happened then? We'll discuss that in week three. But there is one very other important change that happens in Nicaea, Easter. Because in the Gospels, remembering that they describe the life of Yeshu, it tells us that both the crucifixion and the resurrection happen during Pesach. And therefore, early Christians time the observance of Easter to Pesach. So, you know, there's a church with a stained glass window of the, the, the Paschal Lamb, a concept which is completely connected to Easter as far as early Christianity is concerned. But Easter, not Christmas, is the holiest day of the calendar. And, you know, like, so to speak, the early Christians would have to go to Shul before Rosh Chodesh to know when Pesach is um, in order to figure out when Easter is. And, of course, back then, this is before there is a fixed Jewish calendar. That only happens in 358 after, as we will see in a moment, the Jews being kicked out of the land of Israel, or just before, rather. Nicaea establishes independence from the Jewish calendar. They now follow the sun rather than the Jews. And no details were specified, which is why it remained sort of messy over the next few centuries. But it's not just the Jewish calendar that's changed as a result. Within 40 years, all Jewish religious autonomy would be extinguished in the land of Israel. Now that the Christians had power and the emperor behind them, they set about uh, Christianizing the land of Israel. All these sites that you're taken to, well, I guess these are not tours that you necessarily go on, but all the sites that you could be taken to if you take a Christian tour of Israel. Uh, the one that we would all be aware of is the Via Dolorosa in the old city, the, the, you know, the road of, uh, of pain, where Yeshu is claimed to have walked with the cross and the various stations on the way. And didn't he walk there? 
He wouldn't have been crucified inside Jerusalem. You were crucified on the hilltop, as we mentioned last week. And Jerusalem, Horim Sovivlo, has got hills all around it. This is just for a way of getting Jewish stuff to become Christian. Absolutely. And it happens at that time very much so. So you're now changing the nature of the country. And hand in hand with taking over bits of the land is getting rid of the Jewish sages. By the year 358, as just mentioned, Jewish sages had moved to Bovel, to Babylon, and therefore the Jerusalem Talmud had to be edited in a rush by around the year 350 because the Jewish sages could no longer meet. They are kicked out of their own country, not by the Romans. This is 300 years after the destruction, but by the Christians, because the Christians saw in Judaism a big problem. And that is they are constantly looking over their shoulder at an older sister religion, which is still alive, even though it rejected the Messiah. It's more than just simply embarrassing. You've got an older religion from which you stem so their attitude, you know, when it goes through various stages of metamorphosis, initially they say the Jews will die out. Didn't happen. So then they come up with the idea that the Jews are going to be witnesses to the final revelation of truth. They will be the wandering Jews. And, you know, there is a legend about the wandering Jew. Um, he will be there, and suffer. And at the end of time, the Jews will see the truth that they rejected. God has now rejected the Jews and chosen the Christians instead. Now, textually, where does this come from? Well, in Greek, the word for testament and covenant, bris, are the same. And therefore, in Yirmiyahu, in chapter 31, where God says, I will create a new covenant, bris chadosha, they translate it as, I will create a new testament. A new covenant means there will be a renewal of our vows after the exile. A new testament means there's going to be a new people I'm going to be dealing with. And that comes out of a mistranslation of the original Greek. You know, I can't be held responsible for that. So that is all part of the ongoing efforts in Nicaea and beyond. There's one other major change supervised by Constantine, the emperor. A year after Nicaea, he orders the destruction of all works that challenged what were now called Orthodox Christian teachings. In other words, whatever was concluded in Nicaea stands, everything else is out. And then in 331, he commissioned and financed new copies of the Bible. And this is one of the single most decisive factors in the entire history of Christianity. It provided Christian orthodoxy with an unparalleled opportunity. The custodians of orthodoxy could revise, edit, rewrite anything they liked as they saw fit. And many alterations were made in the New Testament. Um, so, you know, you can't underestimate the importance of what he achieved in this. And the New Testament as it exists today is a product of fourth century editors and writers. We have no earlier manuscripts. Perhaps to get specific for a moment, the story of Yeshu and the woman taken in adultery. It's possibly the most famous story associated with him, appearing in John chapter 7. 
and it features in any Hollywood version of his life, even in Mel Gibson's anti-Semitic film The Passion, which despite the fact that that film is supposedly about the last day of Yeshu's life, they couldn't miss this story out. So because, you know, it shows the hypocrisy of the rabbis. So they fit it into the film courtesy of a flashback while he's on the cross. And the famous or infamous one-liner, let the one who is without sin amongst you be the first to cast a stone. Right, very well known. There's only one problem with this story. It wasn't part of John or, for that matter, part of the Gospels. It was added later. As uh, Ehrman writes in his book, Whose Word Is It? Scholars agree that the style, the language is foreign. And therefore, I guess unsurprisingly, it pops up in different places in different manuscripts of the 4th and 5th century. It pops up in John 21 or Luke. So, you know, this is all happening in real time then. And he also installs the Bishop of Rome in the Lateran Palace. It's not until 384 that the Bishop of Rome called himself Pope for the first time. And we will be dealing with that at length next week. So... Wow. So how does this all affect the Jews as things are unfolding? In their writings, because at the time you have the early church fathers, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, in the 4th and 5th centuries. And one thing they share in common is anti-Semitism. So John Chrysostom is credited with basically having provided the ideology for the Nazis. He held that the sins of all the Jews were endless. They were irredeemable. St. Ambrose was a zealous defender of Christianity. A bishop in Mesopotamia fomented hatred against the Jews and a synagogue was burnt to the ground. This is the first time that Christianity has taken a physical stand against the Jews. The emperor ordered that the Jewish house of worship be rebuilt. But Ambrose was adamant that it not be rebuilt. And he writes to the emperor, will you give this triumph over the church of God to the Jews? This exaltation, O emperor, to the unbelievers. St. Jerome, whose uh, most famous achievement was the translation of the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate, as it's known. So his attitude is completely negative. He accused them of the, you know, immoral use of money. And he is the one who gave Moses his horns. Um, he was actually, uh, he spoke Hebrew, read Hebrew, and he was reading from the Hebrew when he translated into Latin. Nevertheless, he uh, wrote that Moses had horns. And even St. Augustine, who uh, was the author of City of God, and uh, he argued, he does argue that Jews shouldn't be actively persecuted, but nevertheless, he wrote that the Jews should be allowed to su survive, but not to thrive. So they are not the nicest bunch. But what we have to understand is that these early writings, the theory of Christianity, the theory of the New Testament, but subsequently the theory of how to live your life, so to speak, from that grew the thought that Jews are not just to be ignored, but they are to be made to pay for ignoring the divine Redeemer, who was one of them. They scorned him, and in turn their fate is to be scorned. Well, okay. Looking forward to episode three. Um, it's fascinating how 
Although Yeshu is the face of Christianity, how little he had to do with, with anything. Yep. It's almost like he died and then everything just happened and hundreds and hundreds of years later. Yeah. Okay, as I said at the beginning, please do send your questions, your feedback, your reviews to podcasts at jd.org.uk and also make sure to rate the podcast with your five stars, of course. It just makes it easier for other listeners to find. Thank you, and we'll see you next week for the final Episode of the third this part. series. Mm-hmm.